Welcome to this Artisans podcast, the focus of which is the relatively recently formed Edinburgh Futures Institute of the University of Edinburgh. As such, I am both delighted and honoured to have as our guests two senior participants in its development. Owen Kelly, OBE, the Deputy Director of the EFI, and neuroscientist Professor Dr. Richard Morris, CBE, FRS, and co-recipient of the Brain Prize 2016. I invited both Owen and Richard to tell something of their early formation in childhood and youth with respect to the arts and sciences. We then discussed relevant elements of their individual experiences and paths to their present roles. And finally, we discussed the special features of the EFI and prospects for its own future. The first of our series of podcasts with Dr. Roger Molina of the University of Texas at Dallas was international. Yet at the Artisans Library, we seek to follow, follow Patrick Geddes' exhortation, both to think global and act local. We also take a particular interest in how our institutions of education and learning respond to the undoubted challenges represented by artisans and those complex dynamic problems to which the idea of artisans is a response. Scotland now has 15 universities, besides other institutions of higher education, of which the University of Edinburgh, chartered by James the Sixth and First in 1582 and opened in 1583, is the third oldest, after St Andrews and Glasgow. For reasons which we hope shall become apparent in future podcasts, each university, in its own way, wittingly or unwittingly, seeks to address those challenges, as do other universities around the world. So let us begin by welcoming our guests, Owen Kelly and Richard Morris. Good afternoon. Welcome, Owen, Owen Kelly, and Richard Morris. I hope I may use your first names. By all means. Of course. Thank you very much. So uh, this is... Um, there's, there's been a preamble to this recording, and I've explained uh, the background of the, these Artisans podcasts and why we're doing them. But um, let, let me just go straight in to the first section of this, which I think will be about uh, 10 or 15 minutes. And that is, I, I standardly want to ask you, kind of your personal background, maybe your family background, your heritage, uh, your childhood and youth the sort of thing that comes in before your formal CV. So, how did the arts and sciences feature? When did you sort of think, did you ever think, this is art, and what did you think of it? Uh, and this is, what is science? I'm talking about your early childhood. So, Owen, maybe you might tackle that first. Yes, I mean, I suppose I grew up in what was, at the time, seemed a very, very conventional uh, environment. Um, my mother was a school teacher. Uh, we, as as the cliche goes, it was a house with plenty of books. Um, my father was a policeman, um, and even though he left school at fourteen, actually, um, and certainly never went anywhere near a university, he he was a great um, autodidact and, and and a great reader. Still is actually. Uh, they're both still alive, fortunately. Um, so as a child, um, I suppose my main exposure to to the arts in, in or the humanities was through through books uh, and literature. Um, I myself was a, a keen reader. I read all of Agatha Christie's books um, before I was about eleven. Um, you know, I was a very very avid reader of all sorts of things. So culturally, that was that was quite ingrained. Um, my mother was also a piano teacher uh, and played the piano, but I, for some reason, didn't really take to the piano at all. And although I've recently, just in the last 10 years or so, taken up the guitar in a more serious way, I was probably never somebody who thought of myself as musical. And I remember one of my school reports on music when I was at primary school, so I would have been about eight or nine, I suppose, 
the teacher wrote, um, he has voice problems but carries on regardless. <laughs> and that still gets thrown up at me at home, thrown back at me at home sometimes. Um, so certainly in childhood, I, um, I, I, thought of, I thought of the arts principally through the medium of, of books rather than anything else. Fine arts of the kind of art gallery kind, to be honest, it wasn't something we did. We lived in the southern suburbs of London. Um, museums, yes, but we didn't, I don't think we ever went, actually, certainly not as family. I think there was a school trip to an art gallery once. Um, and then I suppose the thing that opened it up for me was as I, in my teenage years, interesting, you were asked in your introduction, you mentioned the sort of art science divide. I was of that generation in England where you were doing A-levels and you really had to choose. You, you were encouraged, actually, at the school I was at anyway, to choose one or the other. You know, there were some some rare people who sort of did physics along with with what I did, which was classics, Latin and Greek, um, and, and so on. And, and the reason I did that, I was at a state school. It was actually the last state school in England, I think, to be doing Greek, ancient Greek. And I was one of the last years to have the chance to do it. But when I did the classics and Latin and Greek and so on, that really opened up a whole new sort of world in a way because I came to understand the value of learning other languages and, you know, at least getting to the foothills of appreciation of, of poetry in, in both languages. So, so that was a kind of, that was a big, big change for me. And then I came to university at that time, again, this was the early 1980s. Um, if you had done the classics, classics languages, Latin and Greek, you could either carry on with that or you could try something different. So I looked at Russian or Chinese by an accident of history. At that time, there was a wholesale degradation of Russian teaching. I can't remember exactly why at the university. So I did Chinese, mainly out of a sense of adventure. And at that time, so this would be 1982, um, it was a very odd thing to do. I mean, yes. now I think it seems with hindsight hard to imagine. But at that time, pe people would honestly laugh when I told them I was doing this. I mean, people of my own age yeah. were all doing, you know, German or they were doing you know, physics or whatever. This was seen as really, really outlandish. And there were only five of us in the whole of the university year studying it at the time. I can't think of an exact equivalent today, really, but it was seen as a very strange thing to do. China was seen as a very closed country at the time. It was still the years after Mao had died. Um, so that was, again, another big sort of, I suppose, leap forward in my appreciation of different perspectives mm. um, uh, on the arts. And that involved a year in China, which, again, with hindsight, Seems so bizarre that it could ever have happened, but we were locked in a compound. Um, in all Shandong. This was in Shandong. Yep, this was in Jinan, Shandong province. Um, it was this an arrangement that the University of Edinburgh had at the time. I was at, that's where I was at university uh, at Edinburgh. And yeah, as I say, it seems strange to imagine, but we turned up in Beijing and um, went to the embassy where we had a briefing from the political councillor on how, you know, this was a very uh, very, very different kind of society at that time. China was still emerging. It was still very much, a th in old language, a third world country. There were no tall buildings. The tallest building was the Russian-built hotel in the middle of, um, of Beijing. And it was very much the time of the Cold War. Anyway, yes. so we got sent there, really just left to our own devices, locked up in a compound with foreigners from other other parts of the world. Um, and as okay. I yeah, very, very, very odd in many ways, yeah. Very good. And uh, two things immediately come to mind. There are people, uh, Professor Jeffrey Lloyd at uh, mm. the Needham Institute because of his ability to compare ancient yes. uh, Greek and ancient Chinese yes. cultures. A really fascinating person. Absolutely. And, and, and the other one that comes to mind, of course, is Susan Greenfield, who started mm. off in classics and uh, mm. then moved into neuroscience. So maybe I mm. can use that in the religion, Richard, <laughs> to say the same <laughs> questions to you, please. Your early years, uh, maybe family heritage, maybe maybe an uncle, maybe hobbies, or, but uh, your informal CV, your formation, or as the Germans call it, that your building, your early building. Yes, well, um, not quite sure where to begin, but just to say that um, uh, some similarities with, with, with Owen. Uh, my my grandparents were both um, uh, working people, a gardener on one side and a railway conductor on the other. Um, but my dad uh, was discovered at school to be very bright. 
And when his mum died tragically when he was about 13, uh, the school took dad under his wing and um, really did everything they could to help him. And as a consequence of that, dad got from Hereford School to to, to Cambridge Mm -hmm. um, and became a a wrangler in mathematics and was a really brilliant mathematician. My mum was a mathematician too. She taught mathematics in in schools. Um, And this, um, they met shortly before the war and Dad wanted to stay on and you know have an academic career, but uh, that wasn't possible. So he was sent off to Dartmouth to teach navigation. Oh right, uh, which is an experience which he was very proud of, but he also spoke of with some sadness because many of the young officers were trained by him, and then he heard of their fate mm. um, yeah. a few months later. But one, um, I mentioned that simply because both my parents became very passionate about education. They both felt that education was the thing that had enabled them to to move into a wider world than their parents had enjoyed. And so um, education was very much the sort of thing at home and um, um, became something that, um, you know, through books or conversations or what have you, my sister and I were were, were reminded was, was important. Um, anyway, Dad then um, in the uh, uh, mid to late 50s was uh, asked to go and um, um, – moved to the embassy in Washington, D.C. He was a school inspector by that time, and he was a bit surprised but but took the opportunity, chugged off to America. We went on the Queen Mary. I'm very proud of having traveled on the Queen ah. Mary as an eight-year-old boy. It was exciting, and the, and the uh, Cunard steward took a shine to me and kept bringing me all sorts of good <laughs> stuff. Anyway, uh, so we get to America, and um, I uh, go to school there, uh, to St. Albans School, Rather proud of having had Al Gore in my class, although my I remember him and he doesn't remember me. But um, <laughs> anyway, that's a that's a sort of a, a name drop, if you like. But um, uh, uh, we 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 were just ordinary kids at home and and didn't get involved very much in in Dad's diplomatic life or or, or, or Mum's activities either. But every once in a while. We were dragged along because of some sort of evening party was one where kids were allowed to come. Yes. Now, I'll never forget one in 1959 where I was dragged off um, and uh, uh, I was talking to somebody. Poor man was asked to speak to this sort of, you know, 10-year-old boy. Um, he said, come to the next room. i got something to show me. And he showed me a satellite wow. which was sitting on the uh, dining room table. And that was my first exposure to what was, you know, uh, the amazing times of the beginning of the space race. And um, I thought... What what year was that, Richard? This would be 59, I guess. So two years after Sputnik. I guess that's right. Yes, it would have been... I mean, I can't be precise about that. But, you know, it was for a a 10-year-old boy to be in a room with a physical satellite. You can imagine that had a big impact on me. So... Then when I we came back to Britain and I went to school, I you know it was sort of science for me. Yes, <laughs> and off I did to to do um, uh, uh, physics and chemistry and mathematics on 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 the physical sides side, sides of things, and then that um, in turn led me on to university. But while I was at school, I got really interested in theatre. All right, and I acted in lots of sort of school plays really badly, uh, but I thought I'd continue this interest, and so when I went up to university, which I was privileged to go to Cambridge Trinity Hall, which is the college right beside Keyes College, where Joseph Needham had been, Indeed. been the principal, of course. Anyway, um, uh, the, uh, uh, I, I, I did my physics and chemistry and stuff, and then somehow through some sort of contacts, um, uh, had an opportunity to have a summer job at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology when I was about 19 years old. And so I chug off there to work for a man called Tony French, who'd been a physicist in the in Los Alamos during the war, and um, was uh, trying to help do some sort of I don't know physics experiments for teaching physics, because um, uh, uh, Richard Feynman had introduced these amazing courses at Caltech, and MIT was playing catch up. So we sort of did that kind of stuff. But something really good happened, which was that Tony French didn't pay me enough. Okay. So I was so broke, but I was too proud to approach mum and dad to wire me some money. And so then I discovered that um, that I could teach sailing on the Charles River from the MIT Sailing Club. And if I did that, I'd get a free hamburger in the evening. So I chugged off and did that uh, on a couple of nights of the week, which was sort of good fun. And then I noticed 
that the brain and cognitive science department were looking for subjects for experiments. So I thought, that's good. I'll go and do that. So I went off and did that, and they were doing lots of experiments on prism adaptation at that time. So I joined in on that. I'm not sure I was a very good subject, but they made me wear um, prisms that inverted the, the gaze by about um, 15 or 20 degrees for about three days. So I was sort of wandering around looking like an idiot around the MIT campus wearing these things. But as a consequence of that, whereas initially when I reached forward with my hand, I'd miss whatever I was reaching for. After two or three days, I was accurate. So they were looking at the sort of the plasticity of the system. So I then chugged back to Cambridge and I said, I'm not going to do physics anymore. I want to do brain science. And that's how I uh, got into, um, into my interests in neuroscience. But as I say, from the art side of this, I did keep up my, my, um, my interest um, in the theatre. I never really got to do any major lead parts, bits and pieces, but nothing very much. But I, I did uh, act with what's called the ADC, the Amateur Dramatic Club of, of, of Cambridge, which has been the sort of nursery of many a, a West End theatre uh, director uh, and the Marlowe Society as well. And so I've always maintained an interest in, in the theatre. I don't get to go as often now as I, I would like, <laughs> certainly not in the last year. But, um, uh, you know, that's, that's a sort of another strand to things. Um, and then went on and did my PhD at the University of Sussex. Yes, um, I, I will we'll come on to that, Richard. Okay. But, but thank you both for these answers because they are richly interesting. Navigation on the Charles River. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm trying to remember, and it's uh, my, my memory is fading me. I, I'm not. Uh, I'm yeah. not, a, not, not a client for a hospital, but but um, the artist at Reading, whom I visited who did exactly what you were talking about. I mean, you talked about prism adaptation, but he, he would have, like, go around the campus with a periscope <laughs> or, or with the world upside right. down. But, yes. I mean, not yes. just 30%, but 90% upside down. Yes. Uh, so he was just, just as a fine artist doing that. Yeah. So, um, so yes, you've, you've, you've each started to move on to the next section, which, as I say, is, is trying to sort of get some idea of your own special paths from youth onwards. And uh, so, Owen, if I may address you again first. Um, so for our listeners, Owen, you graduated MA in Chinese at the University of Edinburgh, mm. including, as you say, one year's stay at Shandong University in northeast China. You then, I think, did the fast stream in the civil service, did you? Yes. So this would be in 1986. It's and, the Scottish you know, office. Well, unsurprisingly, perhaps, given that I've done Chinese, I thought, well, what about the Foreign Office? So I went through the fast stream recruitment of the Foreign Office right. and actually okay. got through. But then again, a sign of the times because of a medical condition I have, they rather late in the day said, oh, look, we're terribly sorry. Uh, you can't actually come into the Foreign Office because, you know, it involves overseas work and you've got this medical condition. Um so where, where would you like to work in the home departments? And, of course, with hindsight, I should have said the Treasury or the Cabinet <laughs> Office. I was keen to return to Edinburgh, which I think is very common for people who've lived in Edinburgh as students. And I thought, well, great, I'll work in the Scottish office, which was – this was before devolution, of course, before the creation of the Scottish Parliament. So I had several years working in the Scottish office, which was the UK government department that looked after Scotland – and one of the great things about that particular department was that it covered all aspects of UK government business, yes. but from a Scottish perspective. So for a civil servant, that was that was tremendously that was tremendous fun because you would often find yourself at meetings, usually in Whitehall, where you were there as the Scottish sort of representative, but you had a much broader portfolio yes. of policy interests than they tended to have. And you. Um, and you were there, I think, if I'm right, under two governments, under the, the governments yes, of Margaret yes. Thatcher and John Major. Yes, that's absolutely right. And I was lucky enough to work as a private secretary to one of the ministers in the Scottish office, as it then was, which, you know, that really is a kind of bystander uh, of history sort of job where you're the bag carrier who ends up in the room at all sorts of uh, unusual, unusual moments. But that was a, clearly a difficult time for the then Conservative government in Scotland, Poll tax. That yes, was a, yes. actually poll tax was the first policy job I was assigned to, oh, and goodness. you know that was a bit of the sharp end because yes. you would go to a party <laughs> and you would be a little bit nervous about telling people what you were doing. Because I may say, I may say that I was in London at that time, and we were mm. very conscious of the fact that although we came back for Christmas and usually once in the summer to family, um, 
London was was divorced. I mean, just mm. news wise, mm. you didn't really get the full effect of poll tax in Scotland. No, no, I think that's right. It really was a, a very a very sort of divisive issue. But uh, you then went on, if I if I can mm. inter- intervene again, the, uh, a period in, in Japan, as you mentioned, nineteen ninety four. No, you yeah. didn't. You mentioned China. You had two years, I think, nineteen ninety four to mm. nineteen ninety six in Japan. Mm. Working with the Scottish Development International, yeah, that's right. Japanese inward investment, yeah, to the yeah. UK, yeah, and then through post evolution for the Scottish government, in yep. international relations and press communications, yep. More recently, eight years as CEO of Scottish Financial Enterprise. Yes, this is a prodigious CV, <laughs> but uh, and and it goes on because you. Um, you served two years as director of Historic Scotland, so there's heritage mm. in the arts. Mm. Um, and now you're a deputy director of the Edinburgh Futures Institute, which will under which we'll come. Mm. But uh, but concurrently with being deputy director of the Futures Institute, you're doing your PhD oh, on yeah, Aristotle, so well, Aristotle and ethics <laughs> on on the ethics of wealth creation, yeah. retention, and whatever. Um, and so with a focus on the Nicomachean ethics, I imagine, uh, yeah, which, of course, yeah. is where one of the places where Aristotle really goes into what is art, what is techne, and what is mm. episteme. Mm. Mm. Indeed, yeah. yeah. So, uh, again, this relates back to our uh, mentioning the classics. Yes, uh, and that's actually what, you know, I was coming back to the classics in, in pursuing uh, a PhD in, in ancient philosophy, um, but... The reason I chose to do that was the experience that you mentioned of um, working uh, at the organization Scottish Financial Enterprise, which is the representative body for the financial services industry. So, you know, you're, all the member companies are banks and other financial institutions. Um, and before that, working in government. And I, I think I came through all of that thinking that one of the things that was everybody seemed to be seeking, especially during the financial crisis, was this kind of thing that we call wisdom, you know, mm. and and Sophia. when the when the financial crisis really hit, and immediately there was that great rush to ask governments, um, you know, the UK Chancellor or, or the US um, uh, Secretary of State, you know, to sort of intervene and solve pro- these huge problems that had arisen from these these companies and these uh, these systems, which only six months earlier we had been celebrating as brilliant and understand, having insights into the world that nobody else could possibly get. There was this sort of thing about wisdom, and that's really what took me to Aristotle. Um, and yes, I'm, you're right, I'm, I'm just getting to hopefully towards the end of a, of a PhD, really specifically on Aristotle, Aristotle's idea of justice now and how we can relate his way of thinking about justice to how contemporary companies um, think about their actions, particularly in terms of accumulating wealth. So, so that's the connection, I suppose, between the world of contemporary business and Aristotle's way of thinking about justice. Well, I would ask you lots of questions about the science and art of finance and the science and art of, uh, of uh, you know, trying to get inward investment and all that sort mm. of thing. I mean, uh, did people come to you saying we want to invest in in Scotland? What do you suggest? Or did you? So, which products, which services, which again, these are arts, the art of service or whatever. Mm-hmm. And of course, they're not a, a binary opposition because uh, anybody no. making a product must service the product and service the client with the product. But if I can use the, this this little. Uh, Reference to again allied to you, Richard. Uh, so I think the OECD in 2002 was a um, a report entitled "Understanding the Brain Towards a New Learning Science." So from the OECD. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the same thing to you, Richard, if I may. But I'll, I'll just introduce. So you you were awarded the CBE in 2007. Um, you graduated in Natural Sciences from Trinity, as you said. Trinity Hall, I beg your pardon. Trinity Hall, yeah. Uh, which which year was that? Was that eighty six? No, 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 no. I'm 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 quite long in the tooth compared to to, to Owen. So um, oh yes, of course. It was, it was sixty nine. Oh, I, I beg your pardon. Yeah, sixty nine. That's right. That's right. That's yeah, right. yes, because of that because then you and moved I went to, to Sussex, Sussex, to and you graduated DPhil in nineteen seventy three. 
Yeah. At which time, I may say, my elderly friend and sometimes mentor, David Dykes, the late David Dykes, yes. was founding yes. professor of English. Yes, that's right. And yes. of course, it was a thing at Sussex that uh, from its foundation, uh, I think it was particularly under Asa Briggs that this developed, that, that all art students had to take a science option. Yep. And vice versa. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so David was in the hot seat having to provide English literature classes to science students. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I know that John Maynard was... Smith has decried how that was, he calls it a, an utter scandal or shame that that, that, that that was allowed to go at Sussex. Yes. So you were aware of that at Sussex? At I was time. aware of that, yes. And, and again, I carried on my sort of theatre sort of forays. Um, but um, yes, and, and Asa Briggs was actually vice chancellor at the time I did my PhD. Mm. Inspiring man. Yeah. Yes. So uh, what happened to me then is that I then got a fellowship to work at the University of Durham, um, and although I, you know, successfully set up a lab and started doing some some uh, neuroscience, although we didn't call it that at the time, um, I found Durham didn't suit me because. Mm -hmm. Durham was very stuffy, and having been in Sussex, you know, wearing our our, our purple purple uh, pop coloured <laughs> stuff and all the rest of it, um, somehow I, I I found it was a sort of step backwards. So, I mean, I I stayed two or three years and, and published a few papers, but I then decided to leave academic life at that point, and I um, uh, went to work for the Natural History Museum to help set up one of the first of their new uh, exhibition formats because, again, until that time, Natural History Museum had been a bit sort of stuffy. But they began with a human biology exhibition, which mm. was later opened by Shirley, Shirley Williams, and I worked on that, which was very exciting. But it was during that period that um, I got introduced to somebody who said, why not come and work for the BBC? So I then joined the Science and Features Department in, in BBC in, in a very lowly capacity, pretty much making the coffee, not much more than that. Uh, but I was what's called a researcher on Tomorrow's World. Oh, for goodness and, sake. Um, and um, it was interesting because our, our job as researchers was just to go out and find the stories for the presenters, people like Raymond Baxter and so on and so forth. And um, I, I did find some interesting ones. And I'm quite proud of actually having gone to interview Roger Penrose in Oxford mm. and managed to get uh, Penrose's um, tiling system, his famous tiling system, actually onto Tomorrow's World. So that was a sort of achievement for me. Oh, wonderful. Uh, but it was only in the middle of the program, and us researchers were competing like crazy against each other to get the bit where they roll the credits. But eventually I did find um, um, uh, somebody who uh, lived in Arisag in Scotland who'd invented some bagpipes, which you just plugged into the wall instead of having to pump them. And... Um, <laughs> So we managed to drag him down and, and had lots of CO2 in the, in the studio, and uh, he plugged in his bagpipes as they rolled the credits. So that was my claim to fame. On my goodness, I don't think we can trump that as an anecdote. <laughs> uh, but, but I'm thinking but, that... But what that did, actually, it, it made me realize once again that science was what I wanted to do. And yes. on the back of that, I applied for and got a lectureship at the University of St. Andrews. And um, so began my sort of teaching career, uh, set up a lab, had a wonderful opportunity to to get an MRC fellowship to release me to do research, went off to California and started learning about modern neuroscience. And um, that then uh, set me off on, on, on the path um, uh, of, um, you know, becoming um, a, a sort of jobbing neuroscientist. Uh, well, I was really introduced, Richard, to neuroscience uh, at the... the um, uh, conference held between the Royal Society and partly the ICA in London. Right. And that was organized by Horace, Horace Barlow and Colin Blake. Yes, of course. Yes. Together with uh, Jonathan Miller. Right. And I had the um, temerity to phone them up and say, can I come? And so black tie and merchant in, in the guild hall and stuff and all, all, all sorts of things. But um, so I respond to that, but but just you mentioned the BBC in Tomorrow's World. So yeah. was Martin Freeth? Martin was not in Tomorrow's World, but Martin and I had been at school together. So I oh, had no. met him previously, um, uh, and um, but so I sort of said hello to him from time to time. But he was he was by then a fairly he was a producer in a different department. He didn't cross paths very much. But um, I, I yeah. may say I, I I had a call with him just about a year and a half ago, Yeah. at yeah. which time he told me he was ill. And, of course, oh, he has since died. 
sadly. But um, but I, I actually first met him when I visited the um, Throgmorton Street office of Nesta. Of course. Mm-hmm. Before it moved. Yes. yes uh, so I, yes. I visited Jeremy yes. Newton and yes. him. Yes. And uh, so anyway, no. so, but, um, okay, so we've got you to St. Andrews, my alma mater, I may say. Right. And mm-hmm. again, at that at that uh, conference in London, uh, David Perrett, Dave Perrett was there. Yep, of course. Uh, so he oh, must have been in the department. Very, very distinguished um, professor in, in St. Andrews, probably yeah. close to retirement now, I imagine, but he's done this amazing work on facial recognition uh, with both human experiments and, and earlier on in his career, some, some work with non-human primates. Okay. Yeah. I, 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 honestly, I mean, I'm bursting here now with questions. And I'm, I can see I'm not going to get through everything I wanted to, but I have to pause there and ask you about David Perrett's work. Uh, yes, because this question of integration and pathways and stuff, yep. am I correct or am I wrong when when uh, he identified that sort of that finally facial recognition of one individual was one cell firing? Um, well, he would have been recording from a single cell, but the problem in making that claim is that if you're not recording from all the cells, right. you can't necessarily think there's only one cell that does it. Okay, um, I mean, everything's I think what, feeding what's, in. What's fascinating about David's work was that he really was one of the first people in the world to, to record from cells that were very interested in faces. And then they did all these clever experiments. You know, they'd have a cartoon of face, the cell still fires. Then you cover the eyes. The cell fires, but a little bit less. And you start taking out bits or you start scrambling the thing until finally you get silence from the cell. Mm. So you can see that it is integrating all the various different components of that. And it gave birth to a whole field which is still going uh, about not just is this a face or isn't it a face? It's Is it an angry face? Is it a happy face? Yeah. Um, is it a face of somebody I know? And so on. The dimensions of facial recognition on into forensics are are. are are, are astonishing, actually. Yes. So I think it's very important work. Well, I'm thinking of Vicky Bruce at uh, Stirling. Vicky Bruce, uh, yes, who used to be head of the College of Arts and Humanities here and is now uh, uh, in Newcastle, I think, yeah. And they put on a wonderful show, was it the uh, uh, Ross College Academy, I think, on yes. facial recognition. Yes, yes. Or was it the Portrait Gallery, maybe? Uh, anyway, so yes, as I say, I'm bursting, Richard, with so many questions on this question of inter- integration, but I see the times moving on. So uh, we had some some uh, exchanges before we started this recording, and uh, so I think you got my point that that I was interested in integration, whether it's at the neurocellular level or the pathway level or the region of the brain. You are co-author of the hippocampus book. Yeah. So, um, and then onwards and upwards. And of course, one can go to ridiculous extremes uh, where you try to interpret the whole of civilization. <laughs> I say that I say that guardedly uh, yes. because I have great respect for Ian, Ian McGilchrist uh, and his book, The, the Master and His em- Emissary. But I, as a historian, I find his interpretation of history as, you know, uh, the dominance of the left or the right hemisphere and all that stuff. Yes. Colwyn, yes. Sperry and... And you know which went, and but he but he had the guts to to stay with the the subject even against advice. Ian McGilchrist. So I'm very aware of uh, the danger of taking things to extreme by analogy or paradigm transfer using Kuhn's idea. Yeah. Uh, and so I think even of Claude Shannon and um, um, Bianca Hoffman actually drew, drew attention to me as the 1956 paper of the bandwagon. So you got you got information theory mathematized by Shannon, but then he's, that it keep, it gets taken into every other domain. Everybody wants, it's like catastrophe theory in the 60s again. It was spread yeah. to sociology and history and everything. Um, so you must suffer exactly the same thing in neuroscience, that everybody wants a piece of it and everybody sees how it relates. Can you give any sort of examples where you think people go overboard? Well, um, it's interesting because the question arises of how much the general public knows what neuroscience is. Um, and, it, you know, if it comes up in, you know, just 
casual exchanges, such as, say, somebody sitting beside me on, a, on an aeroplane or something like that, there's a tendency for people to think I'm a neurologist because they start telling me about all sorts of ailments yeah. for me to diagnose. And, of course, I'm not medical, and I, I can't do that. Uh, but, of course, neuroscience is, is not the medical side. Uh, uh, well, it's in its purest form. It's not the medical side of, of, of the brain to do with neurosurgery or neurology or psychiatry, but it's trying to do with uh, just sort of understanding how the nervous system works, the central nervous system and the spinal cord. Um, and uh, just trying to get a basic um, uh, biomedical understanding of how, how it works with a view to trying to develop um, treatments that may help people with d- disorders. So that's really the heart of what um, contemporary neuroscience is all about. And there are so many dimensions to do it on the sensory side with you know vision and audition and olfaction and so on, uh, right through to executive control, frontal lobe, memory, my own area of interest, and then on the output, the motor side and actions and habits and so on. And I, you know, people tend to sort of say sometimes, look, we don't understand how the brain works. And in a way, that's true. But I think it's fantastic to see how much progress there has been in the last 30 or 40 years. And we understand a lot more than we than we did. I mean, that doesn't mean to say there aren't grand challenges ahead. There are, but, but you know, I think we are getting a sense of how this stuff inside our heads actually, you know, does its thing, yes. Well, that's us, uh, yes, I think I think we must move on. But I, yeah, uh, in, sure. in an email to you, Richard, um, I, I mentioned uh, this nice quote from uh, um, Professor Sir Dennis Noble in his book, The Music of Life, and how he felt that now that we had the human genome, he called for building up complexity. Uh, but we now have announced, apparently, the Human Connectome Project. Yes. Can you describe the aim of that? Yes. To so- model every cell in the brain and every every dendrite, every synapse? <laughs> yes. So when you, when you sort of look at a brain, um, uh, it just looks like a sort of white mass. Um, but of course, you know that it consists of cells, and those cells connect to each other. And some of those connections are, are very short distances, so-called local connectivity, little local circuits. Others are much longer, uh, uh, travel much longer distances. Of which, perhaps the most prominent are the BET cells of the motor cortex, which travel uh, axons all the way down the spinal cord to control uh, movements rapidly. Uh, you know, your fingers or, or what have you. So uh, there are various different levels of connectivity. And um, part of the aim of the Human Connectome Project is to try to work that out for the human brain. And that's that's a tall order because, of course, we can't do experiments. We can't sort of, you know, um, cut open human brains while they're alive and sort of investigate using physiological techniques. That's not, 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 not possible. Um, but what can be done using um, either classical anatomical techniques to look at fiber connections or coupling that to modern uh, imaging techniques and notably something called diffusion tensor imaging, uh, which uh, uh, maps um, changes in in, in, uh, um, uh, dipoles associated with water molecules. Um, You could actually work out where these long-range uh, connections go in the human brain. It, it doesn't tell us very much about local circuitry, but there are other ways of getting at that. And so the aim of the Human Connectome Project is to sort of work it all out, you know, in all its complexity and, and move up from just the molecules of which the whole thing's made to, to the more complex system uh, that they, they, they uh, enable. Yeah. And your work... Um, I'm- Probably many listeners, I don't need to remind, but but your work was on on memory and uh, long term p- potentiation. Correct. Yes. Uh, so this was this was the fact that if a neuro- neuronal pathway is used more and used again and again, it gets reinforced. It gets easier. Does it to transmit um, down that? It, it can do. Yes. So the, the, the particular, um, you know, I, I don't feel I've made many major contributions, not hardly at all. But it, it, if there's one, it's it was it was. Uh, recognizing uh, that um, if you're going to sort of form a memory of something, you need to connect um, the memory of an event to, say, the context where it happened. Or if you want to learn things, you've got to put A with B and form connections. And so what I, together with um, a couple of other colleagues, Graham Collingridge and Tim Bliss, did was sort of build on our understanding of this physiological phenomenon of long-term potentiation 
to sort of work out the way in which that connect the, the rules of that connectivity and uh, establish um, through Graham's work uh, uh, drugs that actually blocked these connections from being formed. And then my work was to bring in the behavioral side to show that if that happened, then learning was stopped. Um, and so uh, we, we like to think we've tried to make some little inroads into understanding how the what we call the plasticity, the way yes. in which these connections can change, could be you know absolutely fundamental to memory and, and to learning. Yeah. Okay, well, that's interesting that your part was moving on to the behavioral side because that's moving up the scale of... Yeah, uh, it, absolutely. Yeah. The order of things. So, mm-hmm. okay, let's get on to the... Uh, Futures Institute. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and I see that we're we've got about twenty two minutes left. Of, I don't know whether we can yeah. overrun slightly, but um, so uh, I suppose yes, the, the future, or rather possible futures, because it is uh, the plural in the title, the Futures Institute. Uh, as much as the past and the present has long fascinated people. And, of course, we can think back to the ancient thing, the ancient mancies of geomancy or um, casting runes or even Owen, you know, the, mm. the I Ching. I think the word there Absolutely. in the West is used, claromancy. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so, but an introduction, background to the, 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 the thing. There are now many, many futures institutes mm-hmm. around the world. Uh, I'm thinking of the uh, the Martin Institute at uh, Oxford under Nick Bostrom, or uh, there's uh, Gerald Hooter, uh, yes, Gerald Hooter, mm-hmm. um, and then there's uh, um, the Long Now Foundation, for goodness sake, trying to preserve mm-hmm. civilization for the next 10,000 years. Mm-hmm. What, what, what would you say is the, maybe it does, a unique selling point of, of, of the Edinburgh Futures Institute? We'll get on to how it originated, whose idea it was, and mm. all the rest of it. But what now do you think is its main? I think if we think of it in the in the context of, I suppose what we might call the competition, if we were thinking about the world, you know, in a sort of business sense. I mean, as you, as you rightly say, there's quite a few um, futures institutes or, or, or institutes with um, Bergman is another one. You know. Um, mm. With, with the future focus. I think what is unique about what's going on at the Edinburgh Futures Institute is partly um, its breadth. Um, I mean, Richard has been a, a great um, – he, he's, he's collaborated with EFI already, and I think – What's what's unusual is the is the is the reach of it across all of the university. Um, that's not true of a lot of other institutes, which tend to be focused on some particular aspect of futures, such as risk or, or climate or something like that. Um, so it's very very broad. I think that reflects the traditions of of Edinburgh, the University of Edinburgh, and also the traditions of perhaps of, of Scottish uh, ed- education. And it's also doing the full range of university-type activities. It's got a pretty large uh, set of ambitions around teaching, new ways of teaching, new ways of learning, um, as well as research. So I think it's 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 its breadth really. Um, it's it's a bigger conception of futures, I think, than most of the most of the others. Yes, that's interesting because uh, I, I I note the emphasis on education. Mm. Um, and both undergraduate and postgraduate. But how is mm. that going to work? Uh, I, I mean, is this for people that are already doing one perhaps more specialized degree, coming in and doing a project or something, or are you heading for a four-year art side degree as at McMaster University in Canada, for example? That that would be an example that I'd hold up, founded in 1975. Um, and very selective of their students that will go into this four-year mm. thing. So, so how's the how's that uh, particularly at an undergraduate level? How's that going to work? Well, I think it again reflects the scale actually, and 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 the reach of the thing that it will be both. I think in time. I mean, this will take a few years, but in time, it will be possible to come into the Edinburgh Futures Institute and do a do a do an undergraduate degree at the University of Edinburgh which is, if not entirely, mostly within the Edinburgh Futures Institute. But mm-hmm. one of the things that I think is important to to recognize about, about EFI, and I'll use the EFI since it's yes, clear, if that's okay, um, but um, is that it is there in a way as the servant of the rest of the university. It's not a new thing that is going to start 
plowing it. Everything depends on the um, commitment and participation and partnership of colleagues right across the university. So it's it, it's there to to add a different way of thinking about about learning and research to what is already there. It's an addition to the university. It's not a it's not a sort of demarcation or, or a subtraction or a subtraction. Um, and I think that's really important, not only for for colleagues, of course, who will you know see these. It's not the only development in the university, of course, but it's it's probably one of the one of the larger ones. Um, so yeah, so I think there'll be there'll be both that possibility, and there'll be a possibility if I'm doing a degree as an under as a I'd say I'm doing a master's in I don't know in social and political science. Is there some element of EFI? Maybe I could do my dissertation in EFI and then draw in some different perspectives that way. Um, so it's uh, it, it's something that should be uh, an engine of of development and change across the university. Well, that's wonderful because I I I, I, I was. I, had a slightly taunting question. It sounded like a little bit like a university within the university. <laughs> yes, well, I mean, and that's a very good. Actually, it's a it's a nice, challenging image, but I don't <laughs> think it's correct. Um, it's no, not, it's not. It's not being set up in that way at all. It's um, and it's been actually brilliant. You know, we've got so many colleagues from across so many disciplines. You know, we've got a, one of our um, teaching programs coming on stream. It's on stream now, actually, is future infrastructure. So this is from the end, very much work. Well, it's come home. It's in the uh, School of Engineering, but it's all about infrastructure, big infrastructure projects. But, of course, bringing in some of the other things that we've been touching on, actually, um, whether they, we, we have some philosophy involved in there. Um, so it's not. It's it, it, it will be a different kind of learning opportunity for people who are interested in in that particular area so um it's not a university within a university it is it is a i suppose i think of it as as just a different lens a different way of thinking that can be um brought to bear right across the university i like this um again uh, excuse me if i'm personal but uh so i graduated from st andrews university in 1973 in botany Mm. Uh, but was hankering to see what it was like to do an arts degree. Mm. So I turned to Edinburgh, my na- native city, uh, and I went to see Giles God- Gordon, the pro- uh, Giles Robertson, the professor of art history, and said, may I study mm. art history? So um, so I made that elision. Mm. I was not rejecting the science. Mm. I, I simply wanted to understand what it was like to be do, do an arts degree. And... Uh, I did two years at Edinburgh and then moved to the, moved to London to the Courtauld. That's a complicated story. But even at that time, I had the idea, and I had no name for it. I wanted a department of polymathy. Mm. And I wanted it to be a place where somebody like myself, wanting to elide between the arts and sciences or vice versa, could go and get a sort of conversion degree. So yes. be a postgraduate conversion yeah. degree but the other thing i i thought it should, would, would have would be a pastoral service function so that i was doing an essay on verrocchio the great verrocchio in the national gallery mm. and the bottom left is meant to have been done by leonardo and there's a flower there mm. and okay i was a graduate in botany but i wasn't good on daisies so you know i <laughs> might have wanted to talk to a daisy expert in botany and i felt this department would hold a a, a roster of people not a, not only able but willing, mm. because unless somebody's not willing, you know, to talk to some undergraduate in a foreign country, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, uh, so that was an idea then. So I'm glad to hear that it's it's you, you've got the sort of service to service the rest of the university. Yes, very much so. And you, you touch on another important principle there, actually, which is interesting that when you when you went to do your uh, when you moved into that that world of, of the fine arts, people were receptive, and that's you know the the motto above the uh, building, which 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 comes from the original use of the building as a, as a, as a, as, a, as an infirmary as a hospital yes. is um, is patet omnibus which means open to all everyone can come in and that is it's a big big um, founding principle of EFI that it's it has the humility to bring in the questions and the challenges from out outside the university some students will be coming in bringing their own questions and challenges and working on them as part of their learning. Um, and that's an easy principle to say, but actually we're, we're discovering as time passes that it's really quite hard to put into practice. Yeah. Um, but it, that openness is an important um, an important feature of the of the of EFI. 
Yes, well, my, my grandfather would be smiling from his grave because he was uh, joint head of the eye department for the Royal Infirmary. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, honestly, my, my, my Edinburgh ancestry goes, goes, goes deep. So that's why, honestly, doing this with you both, Richard and Owen, is, is such a thrill to me because Edinburgh's in my blood, so to speak. Mm. And, uh, um, so, yes, okay, let's, let's, let's not just service the university. I think I challenged one of your deans one time with, is Edinburgh still the town's college? Ah, well, a great question. And, (laughs) you know, since we're talking about EFI, although the university generally, I think, has, is very mindful of that, of that question. um, But EFI should be a a vehicle for the university really, um, really kind of, renewing, I suppose, its role as the town's college. There's a, the current director, um, Professor Leslie Makara. She's also the vice principal for um, uh, what, what, what you know, the term of art in the world of universities is community engagement, but that's yes. a bit sort of managerialist. But um, working with the people of Edinburgh is a really important part of the, of the future of EFI. And using Edinburgh, a lot of the work that's going on at EFI and in other parts of the university at the moment is to do with data-driven change, the whole impact of data science and data um, of different kinds. And that a lot, a lot of that will be using Edinburgh as a living laboratory and actually working with the city, both in research and in education and, and in other things. So yes, I think, uh, I think the Towns College. Wonderful. Um, Yes, Leslie Makara, your director. Yes, indeed, yes. Uh, a lawyer. Yep, criminologist. Uh, yep. And so, yes, we, could, we again, we could certainly do the art and science of the law, jurisprudence, and yeah. uh, sure. as, yeah. as the, in quotes, science of the law, um, but also the question of evidence. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I think I have a, a book in the library on evidence in the sense of law, so evidence-driven policy. Mm. Yes. Back to you. And again, I know I'm jumping categories. Um, but anyway, okay, so we're again we're we're time is moving on. So I think I'm gonna cut a bit <laughs> and jump to my uh last two maybe slightly provocative ones, which I mentioned in uh in uh the email to you, Richard. Yeah, sure. So the question of uh will the EFI cover the, the future of history? And will it do the f- future of the book? Um uh, I'm not sure I can answer either of those, but um, to mention that in this series that I'm trying to run under the, under the uh, umbrella of EFI, which we call Galvanized, where we Indeed. try to bring somebody from the arts and humanities side together with somebody from the science side to talk about something, uh, our, our opening uh, seminar this year was um, um, uh, uh, one where um, um, we... Uh, uh, touched on precisely the question of whether one one can think about the history of the future. And uh, we had a historian, and he said the future is not his, his specialist <laughs> historical area. So, <laughs> um, so it, 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 let me just give you one example, which I think follows on from what Owen has talked about, of the way in which um, EFI can um, try to both think about the future and also be responsive to the immediate local environment. Mm. is we had a seminar in this series last year in which um, Gabby Hegel, who's a professor in geology and is a member of the IPCC, talked about the climate crisis. And she gave a wonderful talk um, introducing us to um, or reminding us further about some of the kind of key issues to do with trying to reach net zero. And we coupled her up with a member of EFI who's an architect Mm. um, who teaches architecture, John Brannan, and he's been building sustainable housing for the last 30 years. And what I liked about that combination, and it sort of worked, was on the one hand, you have these grand statistics about the climate crisis. It doesn't quite tell you what to do at nine o'clock on a Monday morning, you know? And how do you turn these things into something that's relevant to people's life locally? Mm. And um, I think John gave an example of how we can think a bit more about how do we make um, our houses more uh, appropriate, you know, the whole business of thermal insulation in a city like Edinburgh, and, and, and so on and so forth. And so that's way of sort of taking something from a very grand scale and turning it into something local that will connect with people 
And we'd like to find more of those sorts of issues because I think that that will be, you know, serving uh, what I understand to be the the some of the core principles that Owen's been talking about with respect to EFI. Yes, well, I'm 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 sort of learning about the institute from what you're doing. By their works, you shall know them. Mm. Uh, but uh, so the, these different series that you've been running, I suppose the one that's maybe apart from your own Richard Galvanized, yeah. because you, you, you specifically yeah. say between science, engineering, and the arts, but the future's lectures. Yeah. So you got the, the series, was that the one in which Dame Athene Donald's lecture was inaugural? Um, yes. Or, I or think maybe there was no yeah. series named. Yes, I think there's... Yeah, there's probably a confusing number of series in a way. So <laughs> one of the things that's been launched just recently, which which I think is has a lot of promise, is um, global conversations. And the first one of those was about global health. That was about a month, six weeks ago. Is that and Anthony Fauci? Tony F- Anthony Fauci, exactly that that one. And there's a series. The, the one in gestation at the moment is the future economy, and that will be that will be coming coming soon. Um, I think the series that Dame Athene spoke at was an earlier series, um, which which may have been completed now. It was 2018, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Colin, can I just quickly respond to your, your other challenging question, which was yes, the future do. of the book and whether yes. EFI will be, will be <laughs> thinking about that. And I think if we interpret that as... Um, you know, in a broad way. I mean, one of the things Written EFI, records, yeah. One of the things EFI is very, very focused on is is the future of information. I suppose, if yes. I could put it like that. So, so there we have the Center for Data, Culture, and Society, which is uh, pretty pretty eminent. Professor Melissa Terrace uh, leads that, and that is very focused on um, how we curate and retain um, information in the broadest sense, not just digital. But yes, including books. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'd say at the moment it, it, it's a very strong area of of research interest. Um, there are some educational aspects to it, but on the research side, I think that is a real focus. But Good. just slightly broader than the book to include. Oh yes, of course. Um, yes, no, yeah, yeah. The 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 corpus of of information that we hold and how we curate it. Let me let me uh, read to you a quote which I had prepared. And uh, so this is Erwin Schrödinger. Uh-huh. And it's mm-hmm. actually this What is Life, 1944. Yes, yes. So I'll just read it to you. We have inherited from our forefathers, let us so say forebears, uh, from our forebears, the keen longing for unified, all embracing knowledge. But on the other hand, it has become next to impossible for a single mind to command more than a small, specialized portion of it. I can see no other escape from this dilemma than that some of us should venture to embark on a synthesis of facts and theories, albeit with second-hand and incomplete knowledge of some of them, at the risk of making fools of ourselves. I find that the most encouraging <laughs> encomium to carry on with what I'm doing. Is it an it's, encomium? It's lovely, isn't it? Yes, it's lovely. Yes, yeah. Is encomium the right word, uh, Encomium? No, I'm not sure, to be honest. No, anyway, it's, it's uh, yeah. So I think we must wrap up, gentlemen. But uh, so thank you very much. Thank you. Spending time with me. And uh, I think you can can perceive that, 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 that we probably could have gone just on neuroscience, Richard, and <laughs> carried on on that track. But, or indeed, everything expands to infinity, doesn't it? But, um, <laughs> Everything is connected. So, any 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 final thoughts, Owen? Well, only I think um, just on that 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 final that quotation. Really, I mean, I think that point about making fools of ourselves. I think that's what EFI is about. I mean, I think we do have a humility in the face of um, the scale of the questions and challenges. Yeah. And I think remind all. Oh, I you know, of course, I tend to think of Aristotle, who who's, who made the you know pretty common sense observation that um, you have to um, have the right expectations of the area of knowledge that you're dealing with. You can't you can't expect to know about ethics in the same way that you know about um, Pythagoras, his, his theorem, you know, so these things are different. And I think just the different natures of different kinds of knowledge and understanding is something we really have to, you know, keep in mind. And, and that's, that does require a lot of humility. And as you 
as your quote suggests, the willingness to make fools of ourselves from time to time. Yes, be bold. Uh, I noticed that uh, you have internally pr- uh, Professor Michele Massimi, I think, is uh, currently chairing the, is it the Futures Lectures? Yes, that's yeah. right. Yes. yes. So her her specialism, uh, perspectival realism. I haven't quite got my head around that, but we know about critical realism. Yeah. You know, going back to yep. Popper Mich- and all Mich- that. is one of a number of incredibly sort of gifted colleagues who we're lucky enough to have working with us, yeah. Right. And uh, Richard, your your final thoughts, perhaps. I don't know quite where to begin. There are so oh, many. Well, we have another two hours. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but then we, um, we can always do this again in six months if you want. <laughs> well, look, I, I, I suppose my final thought is to say that I think the day when, you know, science and artists didn't talk to each other, I very much hope that's over. And when one thinks about things like the Wellcome Trust running a an annual photographic competition and the, the artistic work that's produced by yeah. scientists and from their microscopes or from the telescopes looking at the sky um, that I think gives us all a sense of something that I hope that the master's students in EFI will also gain, which is a sense of wonder. Yeah. Let's do our things in a sort of evidence-based way, but let's retain a sense of wonder. And if we can do that, we'll have got at least one step slightly further forward absolutely mm. my hero is david attenborough and uh, as he has pointed out do we re- i mean the, there's an aesthetic to the you know the degradation of the world absolutely and uh, it's, if it was we're, we're not a beautiful world you know would we really want to if it was blade runners concrete jungle or mm. you know total desert all over yeah so but uh, i suppose if i may allow myself a sort of concluding thing I use this word artisans, and therefore it has an adjective, artisans. So I would like to see everybody, 5%, 3%, 2%, you name it, a small bit, artisan, i.e. the stretch covering everything, or trying to. And then I would like to see a very small proportion of people highly artisan. And that's where I refer to the masters, the masters of art and science, or the bachelor of art and science at McMaster University. So I do encourage you to think of towards a four-year undergraduate degree, and call it what you will: steam, uh, interdisciplinarity. I don't think quite gets the the full mm-hmm. panoply myself, yeah. but um, it, it's certainly important to it. Okay. So, look, gentlemen, thank you so much, because I know you're both extremely busy people. In conclusion, a very brief thank you very much. Thank you. Kelly and Richard Morris. Thank you, Colin. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you found that as fascinating as I did, even beyond my expectations, which were already high. Owen and Richard revealed elements, anecdotes, and experiences which were new to me, so I'm immensely grateful to both of them. Four words which they use strike me. They are wisdom, wonder, service, and humility, words we often shy from using. First, wisdom, which stands over and above the arts and sciences. It is, of course, incorporated in the word philosophy, the love of wisdom, as Sophia. And I would recall here the philosopher Robert Flint, whose papers are preserved in Edinburgh University's special collections. His book of 1904, Philosophy as Scientia Scientiarum, Philosophy as the Science of the Sciences, reviews some 200 classifiers of the sciences through history from Plato and Aristotle up to Patrick Geddes. Also, his study of Gian Battista Vico is most important to the history of relations between the arts and sciences. Second, wonder. What motivates our pursuits in the arts and sciences if it is not wonderment at the nature of the cosmos? Third, service, for as Owen and Richard indicated, The EFI is not a university within the university, but seeks to integrate through service across the University of Edinburgh, which I might note has one of the broadest offerings of courses of any university. 
even within the university, that function of service is obviously enormously desirable. And finally, humility. R.G. Collingwood is perhaps best known for his book, The Principles of Art. But from an artistian point of view, his work, Specula Mentis, or The Map of Knowledge, 1924, is the greater. In it, he wrote of the arrogance of humility with which he approached his task. That is one of the most striking uh, juxtapositions of opposites, an oxymoron like bitterly sweet that I know. It should not surprise one then that like Robert Flint, R.G. Collingwood took great inspiration also from Vico. These four words are related to the ethos of the Edinburgh Futures Institute and ethics has experienced a renewed importance in recent years. Given that, I feel very confident that the Institute shall grow to become a very special element both within and out with and beyond the University of Edinburgh. Thank you once again, Owen Kelly and Richard Morris.